Welcome to our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Zubin Damanya, aka ZDog MD. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. I'll then pose a question for the two of them as a patient based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Hey, Zubin. Welcome back to Fixing Healthcare. Oh, man. It's been a minute. It's good to be back, brother. I want to ask you about an emotion that's rarely discussed, and that's anxiety. I know it affects me as a patient when I have to see a physician. I know it impacts doctors when they provide medical care. And of course, it was perversive throughout the pandemic and now increasingly in the context of people's finances. What can you tell listeners about the emotion of anxiety and how have you been able to help patience and colleagues to handle it. Hmm. Even you talking about it actually elicits the energetic sensation of anxiety <laughs> because it's so, it's so conditioned into uh, humans, particularly in today's society where we live much more in our heads than we did in the old days. I think in, you know, in more ancient societies, there was stuff to do in the day. You had to get through the day. You had to get food. You had to get fresh water. You had to manage. There was so much physical pain that was available to you <laughs> that getting lost in thought wasn't really a luxury that you could have. But today, what we see is, you know, especially in in us, and I mean, in, I can just speak to it because we've gone through medical training. Anxiety is like part and parcel of the fabric of us. And for me, what it, what that's like is it's a, it's a feeling in the body. Um, it's an energetic feeling and, and you can describe it. Maybe, maybe it occurs in the chest for you. Maybe it's in the pit of the stomach. Maybe it's in the head. Everybody feels it a little differently. I feel it mostly in the chest and it's a kind of a constriction, energetic sensation, very kind of beyond the descriptions actually. But that, but what the mind then come and do, comes and does is it makes descriptions. And it says, oh, here's anxiety. And oh, wait, I'm worried about this and this and this. And then the thought storm starts to, to arise that if you notice, creates a little something that doesn't exist maybe in nature, which is a thing called time. <laughs> time is kind of a thought construction. Um, and so suddenly we're projecting into the future a, a, a happening that hasn't happened, may never happen, and exists only now as a thought. And we're attaching it to the sensation that's arising in the chest and we're calling it anxiety. And then it's looping. So the thought then creates a condition where you feel more of the energy, which then leads to other compulsive thoughts. My friend, Judd Brewer, who's a psychiatrist, a neuroscientist and an experienced meditator, really sees it as a kind of um, Skinner box conditioning where we feel the, the stimulus may be the energetic that arises. And then we have the the response, which is to, to have this thought stream occur. And then the addictive component, the behavior is to continue to launch into thought into a projected future where this anxiety is either resolved or, or controlled or something's going on. And, and so then it becomes this loop of suffering um, that generates all this friction. And you can break those kind of loops by reconditioning, or you can also, another way to do it is, what, and this is what I tell my colleagues now is, just sit with the raw sensation. Notice that thoughts are occurring. Notice that they're just thoughts. You can see what they are and maybe 
you get a little practice. You don't take the thoughts literally. You take them as thoughts and let them go and the next thought arises and then go back into the feeling in the chest. And what I've found personally is when I dive into that feeling in the chest, it can radically clarify into what it is, which is just energy in the chest. And then it becomes something that detaches from story. It almost can become blissful um, if you're telling more story about it. And, and then it more often than not, it will morph or dissolve. And that's very different than when I was young and going to medical school and every day in class, my armpits were sweaty. I was tachycardic. I was having PVCs, just racked with the anxiety about the future where I could not project what my role was going to be in medicine. I felt inadequate. I felt the sense of shame that I wasn't good enough, that I'd never be good enough. And all that then drove into this feeling in the chest that I was calling anxiety. And I think this is so common in medicine. Very interesting, Zubin, because I would have said prior to hearing you that the anxiety of a physician and a patient were opposite ends of the same spectrum. We can come back to that in a second, but you're saying maybe they're more similar. So as I try to understand my anxiety as the patient, and by the way, I've had a lot of sports injuries, so I've seen a lot of surgeons and I don't have anxieties when I see them because I have a problem. I know that I want addressed and they have a solution hopefully to address it. The anxiety happens to me when I see a physician where I tell myself I am healthy and my fear is the doctor's going to tell me, oh no, Robbie, you got a problem. You got something that's going to need diagnosis or treatment or some other situation. And this helplessness, this inability to defend myself through, I'll say, denial that I could possibly have a problem now creates that anxiety. And you're saying the same thing, that as a forward-looking medical student, you had anxiety because you couldn't be sure that the future was going to be as bright as you'd like to tell yourself that it was. Uh, yeah, I, I got to, first of all, compliment you on your, your introspective insight. I mean, most, I think most people don't understand or look into the roots of their anxiety, like doc, physician anxiety. That's a great one going in to see the doctor. Like for you, you said a few key words there. You said, um, I have this, you know, I have this identity as a healthy person. And then I have this fear of helplessness, maybe then when the doctor says, no, actually that's not exactly right because there's this. And I think there's these fundamental fears that play into anxiety and they're common to all humans, I think. And one of them is fear of helplessness. So lack of control. One of, so for me, it was like, oh my God, what am I gonna, what, what am I doing? The other one is like fear of abandonment. Like I won't have support, I won't be held. And these fears arise very young in, in mammals, I think. Another one is like fear of intimacy. I, I can't get close to people and that's related to fear of abandonment. And so you get anxious in romantic situations and relationships and situations like that. Um, and there's one more, which I'm forgetting, but you, I mean, I think we've already laid it on pretty heavy. <laughs> These fundamental fears are at the root that protects our sense of identity as a separate being, you know, navigating a world that, you know, feels unsupportive or feels uh, uncontrolled um, and alien and apart from us. And that's the fundamental process of, of ego identification. It's it's natural. It's how we as humans are conditioned. But then when it when it functions actually correctly, it generates this anxious loop that's based in the fundamental fear. Because the other thing you said was the emotion of anxiety when you asked the question. And that made me think quite a bit. Anxiety in itself is not, I think, one emotion, but rather the energetic pattern and the story about it. It may be 
something like, like this morning, for example, I was sitting in meditation and now my meditation is just, I just sit in a chair and see what arises. And I started feeling this fluttering in my chest and this heaviness. And I thought, oh, this is like anxiety. Maybe I have a little anxiety about something. And then I felt into it more and it became clear. No, 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 no. It wasn't anxiety. It was sadness, grief, loss. That's what it was. And then the, it arose. Oh, the grief and loss is this feeling that all the last few years I've had this identity as the guy who makes all these videos and weighs in on these topics and has all this influence and has, you know, this, this, this is me, this is me. And I realized that's falling away. And I've never sat with the grief of this idea of who I was. And now the reality that that's not who I, who I am now. That's not who I maybe want to be. And it's okay to feel the loss of that. And it felt like anxiety. So even that is like, boy, we better clarify what that is. And it just means sitting with it, you know, really feeling into it. Let me be your psychotherapist and say, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> you're, you're good, Ravi. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. That's what I was sitting with this morning. He's like, well, okay, everything disappears. You know, I delete all my social media platform because they cause me suffering, honestly. Um, and just continue to be present with this, whatever this is. That's the worst that could happen. You know, my wife is wonderful. She has a beautiful job. We're not going to starve. We spent years saving money. That's not an issue. It's identity. It's like, who am I? Who am I in the world? And, uh, and, and so, so many of us are in that. And in medicine, it's like, who am I? And my wife was telling me this morning about her, you know, sitting with anxiety and what it was and, you know, the feeling of never knowing enough, never being good enough, you know, um, that kind of thing is it, it, it clouds kind of how we experience our jobs and our work, especially as professionals. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that this is actually a common experience for doctors because if we think that we're really not as good as the world sees us, and in your case, that could be entertaining, funny, uh, something very positive, because you've had a remarkable career in lots of different ways, but we don't see ourselves as being that good or imposter syndrome, if you want to think about it through a more uh, negative lens, then it's discovery. We don't want the world to discover the truth. And if we expose ourselves, if we become more vulnerable, more authentic, then we're going to lose status, reputation, friends, invitations. Is that what you're afraid of? <laughs> you know, Robbie, it's been a minute since we've talked in this way. And uh, I had forgotten why I do this podcast. So... To be honest, I don't care about the podcast. I don't care if anyone hears it. I don't, you know, none of that matters to me. It's getting to talk to somebody who sees pretty clearly and has had so much experience and wisdom about it and reflect back and forth. And it's really a joy. So what you're what you're pointing at is the fear that I'd forgotten. So we had fear of abandonment, fear of intimacy, um, fear of helplessness. The one that I forgot to mention is one of the big four is fear of humiliation. So we're social creatures and early on we're conditioned to fear our loss of status, reputation, being embarrassed, those kind of things. And so we become inauthentic in a way to try to guard against this perceived status loss and so on. And I think there's definitely a piece of that. It's like, wow, man, you work all your life trying to build this kind of reputation and this uh, set of uh, you know accomplishments and really what your what your heart is saying is oh please nobody look here where it's 
fundamentally doesn't know what's going on. It's complete, completely clueless. Please don't look here. So look here instead at what I'm doing out in the world or whatever. And ultimately, when you do look here, you realize, oh, it's fine. It's fine. We're all this way. This is how we are. This is the imper imperfection of being human. And it's beautiful. And underneath it is unconditional love can arise. But to get to reach that unconditional love, boy, you got to go through the layers of fear and delusion that are just there by our conditioning. Taking it back into medicine, and you and I can continue over a drink later today about our own personal uh, forays into this arena. I think a lot about chronic disease, and that's really why I raised this question. I'm trying to understand why people who have the ability to get a test done to be able to help them avoid a heart attack or a stroke or some other problem, choose instead to ignore it, to not do the things. And I'm talking about something that'd be terribly painful. It's a minimal inconvenience that we go through for a lot of other reasons. I'll say when there's pleasure on the other side. So the question I have for you is as clinicians, if we want to take the 60% of the population that have at least one or more chronic diseases and assist them to deal with their own anxiety, how would you recommend we start? Mm. You know, again, because our fundamental human operating system is so backwards that we are conditioned to repress, deny, project away from the feeling inside. And so imagine you you had put yourself in the shoes of the patient and said, when you go in, you get anxious because you're afraid at some level, they're going to tell you that a part of your identity isn't true and you're going to have to do some things that are very uncomfortable or change what you think you are or change your activities. Now, imagine you have um, a chronic disease and that fear is unconscious and it's there and, and they're telling you, you know, here's all the things you need to do. You're afraid of a few things. You may be afraid of death. You may be afraid of helplessness. You may be afraid of being a burden to your family. And those are huge fears. And some will will address them through type A, you know, behavior change and doing all the things. And others will deny. They'll try to escape from that. They'll repress it. Um, they don't want to feel that energy because it's uncomfortable. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing objectively uncomfortable about it, but subjectively, boy, that energy feels bad. And so you, you try to avoid it. So I think, you know, this kind of emotional intelligence education or being able to sit with emotion, understanding emotion, discerning emotion in ourselves is necessary first before we can understand and help our patients because we're doing the same thing they're doing most of the time. And so it's the blind leading the blind. Then we wonder why they're not getting better. We're telling them what to do. Why aren't they doing it? We don't understand at all. We do. We understand on an unconscious level because we're going through it ourselves, but we don't know what to do about it. And that's why I think, you know, some of this work can be this, people will say, oh, you know, you're sitting and doing nothing when you're, when you're working on this stuff or you're thinking about philosophy or whatever it is. It's like, no, actually it's a very compassionate act because when you do understand yourself to some degree and how it works, you can show that kind of unconditional love that you develop for yourself, which is the hardest kind for everyone. And then really put yourself there and speak in a way that actually helps them see um, and, and and honors where they are too, because we don't do that either. We try to project onto them what we think. So let's flip to the other side of the equation, the provider of the care. You've led lots of physicians, particularly when you were in Las Vegas, uh, running the program there. How much do doctors fear 
making a mistake. Obviously, as medical students and as residents, that fear is very conscious. Uh, they get grades, they get feedback all the time. But physicians in practice, how big is that fear? How much of it is denied and repressed in ways that are negative? Do you have thoughts and advice for the people providing that care to deal with that anxiety or maybe not even be aware that it exists and become aware of it and to deal with it and hopefully feel better at the end of the workday? Mm, yeah. And I think your book was so great about this. You know, th th this is something we don't even talk about because there's so much fear here, you know, and uh, fear of humiliation, fear of helplessness. I think those are the big ones, the big two out of the four that are are felt even fear of abandonment that we're, our colleagues are going to find out that we made a mistake or we don't know what we're doing and they're going to leave us or, you know, uh, support structures are going to dissolve and you're afraid of hurting other people. And I, this is so conditioned and everybody deals with it differently. So I, I was just talking to my wife about this this morning. So in residency, both of us did the same residency in medicine, and then she saw the light and did radiology afterwards. But part of the reason she did that is when she was in medicine, she felt that fear of making mistakes because medicine was so open-ended and she would sit with these patients who were suffering and it was just so overwhelming because she was she's very sensitive. And the way she responded is instead of, <clears throat> repression and all that, she would get very depressed. She would feel very sad and hopeless about it. And ultimately that prompted maybe a change in career, which was great for her. The way I dealt with it was I started to dehumanize myself and patients to get through residency to where it was all just like a, you know, a problem trying to get through the day. I used humor, which was a higher level coping mechanism. And really, and, and my wife told me, she goes, you know, I used to kind of get really frustrated with you because you seemed so well-adjusted and balanced and I was suffering so much and we never really openly talked about it in those days because we were pretty repressed overall. And now here we are both under, undergoing this journey. And, uh, and I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry you felt that way because I was falling apart with fear. And the way I dealt with it was to repress it in this way, tie it up in a nice bundle and make jokes about it. And everybody loved me and thought I was great and thought I knew what I was doing. But in reality, I was as scared or more scared than anybody else. And so is that productive? Well, it's a survival mechanism. It's definitely an adaptation to get through the day, but it's not a recipe for better medicine, for compassion or for self-love or for sustainability. So many physicians have these mechanisms. And what if we just normalized a culture of talking about mistakes? What if we normalized the fact that, you know, we do need help. We need like mechanisms, supports us, structures and systems, electronic health records that actually help us prevent mistakes instead of adding to the cognitive burden you know, those kind of things and and allowing this fear of helplessness to say, you know what, to some degree there is a helplessness. So we need help um, and we need support from each other. And we need a, a normalization of talking about errors and talking about our feelings about them. Cause you know, it feels unsafe to do that in most medical environments these days. Let me ask you about a couple of quick things. Will chat GPT increase the, the clinician's anxiety or diminish it? Mm, I think it's still to be told. I would say as it gets better, um, it has the potential to actually improve our anxiety because it might show us connections and ways of thinking that we aren't physically, mentally capable of doing because we don't have these huge data sets. And because it's a computer and it has this unfair advantage in a way, we don't get that feeling of being 
directly threatened in a way. And so we can kind of say, oh, it didn't occur to me that that could be the case. And if we start training younger medical residents and students in this culture of like understanding we're quite fallible and using everything we can to reduce that fallibility, then the old culture of, oh, the doctor is the cowboy who knows everything and everybody just shut up and listen to them uh, can start to fall away. And so in that sense, I think it might actually help. But I'm curious what you think. I think that it'll be both. I think the idea of being wrong, and we know that 400,000 people die every year from misdiagnoses, is something we don't want to confront. And if a machine forces us to, or the 200,000 deaths from medical error, and the machine's going to be there to watch it happening and either tell us not to do it or to be evidence that we did accomplish it or, or failed to do the right thing and accomplish the right thing, then I think it could increase anxiety. And on the other hand, I think people who become comfortable with, as you say, being able to accept the fallibility, to be able to accept the errors that they can do, will see it as a friend, as a associate who can give them second opinions, give them added advice, provide information on the most recent literature, do all the things that we would want our doctors to be doing as patients. So I think it's really gonna depend upon the ego and the self-perception uh, of the various providers of care. And it could, as you say, move them in either direction. Um, I'm hoping it'll move them all into the right direction. Mm, I think you're right. And I think the key thing is, again, it depends on the level of <laughs> of self-insight that those folks have, like you said. It, it, if they see clearly that, you know, we're, <laughs> this is part of it is like, there's a self-forgiveness that's involved where you realize, man, all of this is kind of innocently happening and we do the best we can. And we've always done the best that we could do in that moment. It couldn't be otherwise. So we go back and kind of feel into that and go, okay, yeah, we are imperfect. So here's something that's maybe a little good at, at some of the at smoothing over some of those imperfections. Let's try to embrace it, you know, especially when it tells us something that we missed, well, we can learn from that, you know. Will anxiety drive medical healthcare transformation or will it inhibit it? Oh, it's a great question. I'll tell you, it drives a lot of cost currently because patients are anxious. So there's the worried well, you know, that's a whole, it's a phrase we use worried well. I mean, that's an anxious patient that we end up doing a bunch of tests. And then you have the sorry, sort of sort of vaguely worried well that are reading books and realizing, oh, maybe I should get a full body scan. Maybe I should get a panel of 200 blood tests to screen because I want to live forever. And, you know, that's a particular form of... <laughs> delusion because we we know the costs, the iatrogenic harm of doing unnecessary uh, tests like that and screening and so on. And so I think I think anxiety about our healthcare system might drive it to uh, be transformed. Anxiety about our own role in it too, like, oh my God, you know, we know this is unsustainable. So what are we going to do that's going to make it better, more sustainable? Um, so I, yeah, I'm curious what you think about that. I think anxiety stands in the way of progress. I think similar to my experience when I'm going to go to the doctor and I don't want to confront the reality, I think that um, most clinicians understand that the change is necessary. And although they'd like to think it's only someone else's problem, they also are aware that they are contributors to it and they don't want to have to address that. I think it's just the nature of human emotion and so I think overcoming that anxiety, being able to recognize what it is, to understand what's happening, to be able to confront and accept 
your part in the process. Uh, I think if everyone could do that, we would be on the way towards making the changes that are needed because then it becomes obvious that the systems are broken and the culture needs to be improved and all the other changes that are going to be there. But as long as we can uh, hold it off through anxiety, through denial, through repression, and I think anxiety is the repression and the denial seeping through and coming through, as long as we can keep it at bay, uh, then we just keep doing what we're doing. And so I, I say anxiety is a big problem uh, really as a symptom, you know, I, I might think about it as fever, you know, fever is a symptom of an underlying disease. It's not a disease unto itself. Anxiety for most people is a symptom. And I think the symptom is, are the things underneath it that we would rather experience, as you say, the tightness across your chest than have to confront them head on. Yeah. I think that's well said. Yeah. Let me ask you about another area that I've been uh, thinking a lot about lately, which is bias. And this could be race, socioeconomics, appearance. There's a lot of different biases that exist in society and in medicine. And I think it's increasingly being recognized and called out in healthcare. How do you recommend that we think about addressing the problem as the providers of medical care? And again, if you were still leading the medical group that you were head of before, how would you be advising them to address it? And what do you? What advice do you have for patients who feel that it's happening to them in order to help them confront it? Mm. This is this is such a um, difficult issue because it gets to the root of human conditioning. So humans are you know conditioned throughout life, and they may have some predispositions, and we are kind of innately biased, heuristic using creatures. So this is this is kind of. It's very important to to separate out a kind of a shaming approach to that, where it's like, oh, you're somehow a bad person because you have this bias that's unconscious and so on. Like conscious bias is another thing. Then you could say, okay, a little bit of application of societal pressure in that way might be very good. But for the unconscious, it just drives it further into the unconscious. You don't want to shine a light on something that's shameful. So take the shame component out of it. Normalize the fact that we're all kind of racist, biased, sexist um, lunatics at baseline, meaning it's part of the human sort of conditioning. And, and especially, you know, people who grew up in an era where things were quite different and now they're asked to use different language. They're asked to use, it's very, it's challenging because they feel like they're told that they're somehow less than. And humans are very defensive against that, understandably. So first of all, normalizing that this is, hey, this is just how it is. And then- and then figuring out techniques to actually see and and realize where those biases are. Because in medicine, it's rampant. Like you said, it's everywhere. So yeah, it's nice to have you know training in that, but then people can often defend against that. So the training has to be good. But then it's, again, it has to do with introspection. Like where, you know, where are these biases arising in me? Where do I feel them? And it's the same goes for the patients. They, if they feel like, man, this is not, this does not feel right. Like they need to be able to have a voice and say, you know, this is, I'm being treated differently because of whatever characteristic here. Um, and then, and then maybe there's a question, and I don't have the answer for all this, right? But I think there's a question of, uh, does AI have a role here? Because AI can see, assuming you train it correctly because you can bias AI very easily. And this is why I think we have to have some self-forgiveness. The way humans are conditioned is the same way AI can be conditioned on data sets of experience. Um, 
if you condition it correctly, whatever that means, then it can point out where, oh, with this patient, it's going to see in a, in a relatively colorblind, sex-blind, attribute-blind blind way. And it might show us where, oh, it didn't even occur to me to think about that because my assumption with this population is this. So I think there's ways to do that. And then of course, just again, the introspection component can lead to a feeling of generalized unconditional love, which means it's 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 much, unconditional love is very different than empathy where you have to feel somebody else's pain directly because they look and feel like you. So you can put yourself in their shoes. That can be hard to do when someone looks and feels different than you. But unconditional love is like, oh no, no, that person is me, regardless of how they look. And that's something that can be actually cultivated through practice. So those are my just useless thoughts. I see it very similar to you. I have an optimism actually about uh, generative AI, uh, not the narrow AI that's been used in the past because that will embed the biases in medical practice into the recommendations of the computer application. But generative AI, I think, has that possibility. I could imagine a time when you'd connect the monitors, uh, the EHR laboratory, the blood pressure, the pulse, the other monitors at bedside into the uh, plug-in, into the generative AI application. And you know, one of the areas that I'm most embarrassed by about American medicine is maternal mortality, particularly amongst for black women or for poor people. Um, it's twice as high as the second highest nation, France, and it's 10 times higher than Norway, Netherlands, uh, New Zealand, lots of countries. And I think it could let clinicians know when the practices they were doing deviated from usual practice. I mean, I think about a maternity area where if let's say on a 10 point scale of pain, an anesthesiologist consulted at four about an epidural and a black patient is there with a five or a six, it could ask, why have you not ordered or mm. requested an anesthesia consult? Now there might be a reason, maybe the person had back surgery and it would not be an appropriate intervention, but more often than not, I think we'll identify this bias that has been well recognized to undervalue the pain reported by black patients. Or if a patient one day postpartum has extra bleeding or high blood pressure and the patient and the nurse would normally call the attending physician to come in and evaluate the individual, but this patient's on Medicaid and all of a sudden they're not calling them in, it would point out that bias sitting there that um, somehow disturbing an attending physician for a poor patient is not as important as disturbing it for a better paying patient. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in the future, but I'm becoming more convinced that we just have to have these conversations. And what we know is that implicit bias happens when it's someone else's group, not your own. That's why I think diversity is so important. And I think leaders are gonna have to be willing to empower individuals in the groups for which bias has been identified and disparities and outcome have been shown in research to actually talk about these issues. And it's going to be difficult to require uh, psychological safety. It's going to require courage. There are a lot of ways in which could go wrong, but I think if not, nothing's going to happen. And I raise the question just because when I look back, you know, we've been talking about this for 10 years. And I'm just uh, amazed as I read the literature, how much the problem just continues. All I see is new articles finding new areas in which this bias exists and harms patients. And that's why to me, it's something I think about, uh, how do we move forward now through humans? And then how do we move forward over time as the computers, the machines, the generative AI become stronger and stronger? 
Yeah, well said. Absolutely. Let me ask you one last thing before we turn it over to Jeremy for a question. I know you saw the movie Barbie. Did you like it? And what lessons in healthcare can you take? Did you take away from this very popular film? Man, you um, once again have tied it together nicely in a little bow. So I watched Barbie because my kids dragged me to see Barbie. The whole family went, and I. <laughs> and, you know, I'd read some of the press on it and it, the press was completely divided based on politics. So conservative press saying it's woke ideology and feminism gone wild and and dumb and liberals saying, oh, finally, you know, men are being put in their place and blah, blah, blah. And then I watched it and I was like, it's none of that. <laughs> what it's about, it's about, um, again, identity, identity, shame, emotional repression, and feeling, being able to feel uh, in an unobstructed way. And Bar Barbie herself, um, who's a plastic you know, robot technically, comes to life when she starts feeling human emotions and understanding others. And this kind of awakening happens where you know, she, she really wakes up and you know, it was beautiful. Um, it was, um, you know, I was quite moved by it. And all the identity issues of am I masculine, am I feminine? What is a man? What is a woman? Th that's all substory to, you know, what's going on right now. Like, I, can I feel what it is to be human, um, unobstructed, without a bunch of uh, story and and um, stereotype and you know societal role and all of that? And when when that's allowed, you just see the the beauty starts to emerge. I, yeah, I thought it was beautiful, and it's interesting. It takes a lot for for the credits to actually make you cry. So when the credits start rolling, they're playing a Billie Eilish song, um, What Was I Made For? And she's singing this plaintive song from the standpoint of the Barbie doll. You know, what was I made for? What was I made for? Is Who am I? That's the fundamental inquiry. And uh, it's just beautiful. I thought it was beautifully done. Sounds wonderful. I saw it too. I loved it as well. Maybe the next show we'll talk about it some more. Jeremy, why don't you pose the question to us? Earlier, you discussed imposter syndrome, and I think that's something that everyone feels from time to time. Maybe they got a promotion they didn't expect or a new job opportunity or started a business that became more successful than they ever expected. Uh, many people in this situation, at least initially, struggle to have the confidence they need to truly uh, succeed in this new situation. Uh, what advice do you have for people in this situation? And maybe you have both dealt with imposter syndrome or struggled with confidence in the past. Z-Dog, I think maybe when you went viral on YouTube and became a big healthcare influencer and keynote speaker, or Robbie, when you first got the job in the CEO role at Kaiser Permanente, uh, what are your personal experiences with this? How did you overcome your struggles with confidence or imposter syndrome? And what advice do you have for others in this situation? I'm going to let Robbie take this first. It's interesting when you read the psychological literature what you see is evidence on both sides of this equation, the equation being our ability to actually quantify our own abilities and successes. On one hand, as you pointed out, there tends to be all this fear that we aren't as good as we project ourselves to be. And on the other hand, at least on psychological tests, when you ask people whether they think they're better than average, 
90% of people are certain they're better than average. Are they in the top 10%? Half of people think they're going to be in the top 10 or 20%. Mathematically, impossibilities all over the place. So I think what it really refers to or recognizes is that we have these insecurities. We address them through overconfidence, and we also suffer from a certain fear of exposure. And this is the nature. I think of the human. I don't think... I have a wonderful dog. I don't think he thinks about these kinds of things. I don't think he worries about these kinds of things. I think all he wants to know is that he's loved. But we have a hierarchical uh, levels of expectation, reputation, esteem, position in society, hierarchy. And I think that all of these are factors around that. And then it's made worse by the, I'll say, the realities of one's life, the family you grew up in and how your parents treated you. Um aspects of race and sex and other pieces in which there is a bias and discrimination that impact you. Uh, the hierarchy of medicine, where certainly at the lower levels, you are uh, essentially told that you're really stupid and dumb and to keep your mouth shut and just do everything I tell you and mop the floor when you're all done. I think the entire processes of the human existence, the, the uh, desire to create um, existential value, these are the human emotions that we struggle with. I think they're simply part of life. My only uh, thought to people is to have the confidence in themselves and the willingness to make change if it shouldn't work out. My observation of people who are um, take the time to invest in themselves, take the time to position themselves to make the good decisions is that usually things turn out better than they thought, always different. But as I say, most of the time, better. And I think that when it doesn't, we have the opportunity to do something about it. So in the end, I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. The realism is that this is the nature of the human condition. My optimism is that things will be better than we fear it to be. Uh, maybe not as good as we would like it to be, but a life well-led. <laughs> yeah, that's why I wanted Robbie to go first, because he perfectly pretty much delineates the kind of human condition. So on the relative world, this is how it is. It's, it's nuanced, it's complicated. Imposter syndrome is a big part of it, confidence. And like you said, causes and conditions of your life lead to all of this identity structure that then needs to be defended. And then there's fear of helplessness, fear of humiliation, all those root fears that we defend against. At, at a, at, at, and it feels existential. It feels like a life-threatening thing because we're social creatures and to be excommunicated from the tribe is death, actually. So it is life, it's life-threatening as far as our history goes as a species. So I am gonna make a one observation and point that's um, more in the transhuman <laughs> space. So I'll say this, we need this kind of radical self-forgiveness because all of us are imposters, every single one of us. The mechanism that we think is us, the series of, personalities and attributes and abilities and lack of abilities and memories and all that is appearance. It is not real in an objective sense. It cannot be good enough. It can never be good enough. And it always is going to operate through the lens of reflective thought where it feels like it's not. So forgive it. It can't do, a, a mechanism can't be more than a mechanism, but we feel that it is. So what's underneath it? Feel into that. What are you actually? You know, you're the capacity to know all of this unconditionally as a kind of love. So when that's 
the background operating system, then when the mechanism arises, you can go, okay, yeah, I can improve the mechanism this way. Oh, the mechanism is really feeling inadequate. Of course it would. All right, well, what can it do? It can do these things. It can be honest. It can be humble. It can look for help. It can forgive itself. It can stop beating itself up at night with anxiety to pull it full circle. So that's my uh, two cents. Well, hopefully all the listeners will take your message to heart and they'll be more accepting of themselves and more open to struggling with human existence. And in the process, not only make themselves to be more intact and whole individuals, but to help others along that path. Zubin, it's always fun. Can't wait to the next time. Thanks for being here today. Likewise, brother. It's a joy. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on healthcare topics, you can go to Robbie's website, robertperlmd.com, and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day.